0: You could have a top-ranked resort in a lot of places in the world, but you are competing at the top in very competitive landscapes, like the Caribbean, you know, like France. What's the secret?
1: At the end of the day, Ben, the, the, you could build a beautiful hotel in a beautiful location, uh, get all the details right in terms of the physical environment. But for us, the distinguishing feature is by far the team how you take care of them, how you encourage them, how you train them, how you make them feel part of something special because that translates to the guests. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben.
0: Hey, Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back to another fun episode. Today I have with me, and coming right to you, Denise Dupre, who is founder and managing partner of Champagne Hospitality. Now, if you're not familiar with Champagne, with a Champagne Hospitality, you're going to love it. They are a leading hotel design and development company with award-winning properties in the Champagne and Burgundy regions of France and in St. Barts and the Caribbean and Couture Harvest, a portfolio of vineyards that are pioneering organic and biodynamic vitaculture and innovative techniques like undersea aging and experimental gold and titanium barrels, which we're going to get into today because those produce award-winning wines. Now, Condé Nast has recognized the Royal Champagne as the best resort in France and has named Le Bartholomew repeatedly the best resort in the Caribbean and both hotels have been ranked among the best resorts in the world y'all. Now, back to Denise, she shaped generations of industry leaders as an as an educator at the world's leading hospitality schools, including Cornell and Boston University and in a graduate program at Harvard University. She's also a philanthropist dedicated to making a positive impact and pushing boundaries and improving education, sustainability, and more. Denise, welcome to lead the team.
1: Thanks so much, Ben. Great to be here.
0: I get so excited reading bios like this because it's just like home run after home run after home run. And I uh, honestly have no idea how we're going to get to everything in 30 minutes or so, but we'll do our best. So
1: give it a go.
0: All right. The first thing is, what in the world are these innovations you're doing with wine? I have never heard about, I mean, just thinking about undersea aging and titanium and, and gold barrels. What is this stuff?
1: Well, you know, Ben, one of our uh, pieces of culture in all of our companies is is one of innovation. And we encourage all of our team to take risks. Our winemaker is something of a combination of scientist and artist, and he comes up with what at the start might seem like crazy ideas, uh, but he's really very thoughtful, uh, very um, extraordinary in some of his adventures. So he came to us with the idea of submerging champagne under the sea, was very particular about where it went, chose a depth... 60 meters where the pressure inside and outside the bottle was exactly the same. And his philosophy, his idea was this notion of the bottles constantly rolling in the sea in a very dark, sustained, equal environment could produce something quite special. We were a little skeptical, to be honest, one would be. So we ran an experiment which we called the Land and Sea Test And we literally took half of the wine out of a barrel and aged it in the cave as per normal, and half of the wine and put it under the sea. And I have to tell you, the difference in the taste was so extraordinary and exceptional, we just couldn't believe it. The bubbles were finer, there was sort of a salinity to it, and this incredibly authentic biodynamic the shells are still on the bottle imagine it goes down in the sea in a big lobster trap and comes back up hmm. and it's becoming a four clinic champagne um, it, by label called abyss by Leclerc Briand, and last year the revue de van france which is uh, france's highest honor gave our little wine shop wine of the year And Abyss is our flagship, um, now available in restaurants all over the world. And you got to taste it to believe it, Ben. That's all I can say.
0: Wow. Well, it just seems, so the reputation of French wines, champagnes, let's just say the old school, right? Like, hey, this is our and This is where we do it. And this is the way we've been doing it for generations. And you're like, okay, let's send it into the special barrels under the, uh, you know, way under the ocean and leave it there for a while and see what happens. What it, what is this? Has this mindset always been in this organization, or, or I guess, well, you founded it. So, how are you yeah, thinking about old school versus new school? Uh.
1: It's a great question. We we have the great privilege and honor of a sequence of French owners to the, the, the Champagne House. So we just celebrated our 150th anniversary. We've uh, been in the Champagne House for the last decade. There is a rich tradition, which we have such respect for, and quite frankly, a lot of rules around which Champagne is made. And we honor those in every way that we can. But I think there still is room for, for innovation and creativity. Um, your, your question asked, you know, has this always been the 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 house? And the answer in some ways is yes, even though we weren't part of it at the time. But the the Clercant label is one of the oldest BO champagnes ever. So one of the former owners, he decided to not use for you know, so I guess we come by it honestly. Uh, to to follow the legacy of of this uh, from, from generations ago.
0: Wow, yeah, I mean that's that's a really cool story. Now going back to this experiment, how long was it under the under the ocean? Great
1: question. We aged about 18 months under the sea and then pulled it up. Um, you know, you, you let the bottle sleep. Um, as you would in the cave as well. And there are um, rules about how long bottles have to sleep um, and how hmm. long you age champagne as well. So, totally respectful of those as well.
0: Okay. So, we have a lot of business leaders that listen to this podcast, and I'll, they're always looking for new things to share at their business meals and gatherings. And so, y'all go check out this. We'll, we'll have a link in the show notes to the champagne so you can go locate it uh but um now you've got the inside story on it too that you can share from denise now
1: Cheers, let's everyone so, listening
0: so let's get into this and i want to talk about your background and everything but i want to titanium barrels yeah this is back to our winemaker again um
1: you know he he started with gold, actually. Gold being one of the purest elements, something that actually restaurateurs, chefs sometimes use on on food because it's beautiful and edible. So his first experiment was to line a barrel with gold to see what would happen, and it did lend a minerality to the champagne. But our winemaker decided that it wasn't quite perfect. And I'm a little bit too intense, so it became part of a blend hmm. that also is quite exquisite. So it, it 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 evolves, and and I think you know uh, uh, the thing about winemakers is their story evolves every year. Um, they take what they learned in the harvest the year before, uh, take the tricks of the trade, share with others. Um, it, it's quite a thing.
0: So as a as the founder of this organization what do you do to balance the business side so the profitability of the organization with all of these i mean i don't know what the cost of a gold wine barrel or a titanium wine barrel is but it's probably a lot more than a wooden one <laughs> you know and you're, so you're met, so you're sort of trying to process the art with the business with the science so, so how do how are you sort of marrying all these things together
1: We don't ever stray too far from keeping our hands on the the profit and loss, because, you know, ultimately, it's the profit and loss of a business that drives good decisions. If you're if you're unconstrained in how you're thinking about it, you don't last and it's non-sustainable. So even though there is experimentation and encouragement of innovation, there are things that we try that don't work. And part of what that means is cut your losses quickly and move on. But if you don't, if you don't push the envelope, you, you don't, you don't really get to be in the forefront. And and you want to do everything you can to distinguish yourself. And heaven only knows there's so many amazing champagnes in the world. So you really have to to work hard to stand out. But right, I, so, I don't think yeah. those should be exclusive. I, I think you can do both.
0: Well, you're obviously walking the line very well on that, and and you know threading the needle. So let's talk about your resorts. Um, you could you could have a top-ranked resort in a lot of places in the world, but you are competing at the top in very competitive landscapes, like the Caribbean, you know, like France. What's the secret to leading an organization? To, to hit the top, and, you know, in these really competitive uh, resort environments.
1: Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, Ben, the, the you could build a beautiful hotel in a beautiful location, uh, get all the details right in terms of the physical environment. But for us, the distinguishing feature is by far the team, how you take mm. care of them, yeah. how you encourage them, how you train them. Uh, you make them feel part of something special because that translates to the guests. And hmm. you, you know, you ask the question about leadership. For me, it's always being close to the front line, always paying attention, because ultimately the people that in. In my view, the best ideas are those that are interacting with customers. Great ideas can come from anywhere. And typically, I think in, in a hospitality business, it's often your guests that that help you understand what tomorrow should look like. And if you train your whole team to listen for innovation and to listen for what guests really want in delivering an experience, and you empower them to be able to actually have the impact that your guests want, that's the secret sauce.
0: Love that! You just revealed the secret sauce. Now, can you give us give us an example, or maybe a fun story, of when that secret sauce of listening to the people in the front of the, of the business created a, a special moment or or an opportunity for the, from the organization and the customer? Sure, a couple
1: that are the seemingly small details, but it's the kind of thing that makes a difference. So. We had a guest uh, drop a pretty expensive bottle in their room. They felt horribly, glass everywhere. And obviously, you know, that's a little bit of a task for housekeepers, but no problem. What our housekeepers did, though, that was above and beyond is not just clean up the perfume bottle, but went to our gift shop, got another bottle of perfume, wrote a handwritten note that said, you know, so sorry that you lost your perfume, but we hope you'll enjoy trying this one. I didn't have anything to do with that. That was initiative of a housekeeper. Well, I Hmm. shouldn't say I didn't have anything to do with it. I empower and encourage our team to always look out for ways that they can do the extra benefit for a guest. And that's the kind of thing that happens. Hmm. Um, That guest posted it on TripAdvisor, And then it became a little bit of a talking piece throughout the hotel. So it wasn't just one broken perfume bottle. It became a celebration in the employee uh, canteen to, you know, give hats off to uh, a housekeeper who went above and beyond. So that would be one example. And you see it over and over again. If you let your team genuinely try to take good care of your guests.
0: Yeah. Versus, oh, uh, I would like to give them a champagne or a, a a bottle of perfume, but I need to escalate it to Denise to see if she'll uh, do it. And then by the time it actually gets to you, right, they've already left the hotel and they're mail, you yeah. know. Instead, cleaned up, real time, handwritten note. That and that handwritten note may be worth more then then the value of replacing the uh, the perfume probably I suspect yeah,
1: absolutely absolutely been on two dimensions not only did the guest feel great but the staff member had a sense of joy for making life better for a guest and then their the fellow team gave them kudos for for being thoughtful so it's a glory spiral really where more than one person benefits.
0: A glory spiral. Do you use that a lot, or did you just come up with that? Do you- <laughs> oh,
1: that's a question. I, that was pretty I tried good. To it, but, try to reserve it for special moments, but you you provoked it in me. So what can I say?
0: Well, the let the glory spiral prevail. Um, because yeah, yeah. I mean, what what an amazing experience. Now you see. So you, I think you you generated an example. So you you what was the message or, or what are you crafting so that a housekeeper on a an island away, you know, hours away from you knows to do this? Like how was that? How are you communicating that message and ultimately it's, it's getting down to the front lines?
1: Um it's work. And to be perfectly honest, some of what you're up against is people don't really believe you at first you know your team doesn't read you really mean it that I'm really allowed to do that and i i think we we try to amplify anytime that it happens in our staff newsletter and sharing with other team members you know so it becomes almost part of the culture if you reward and you amplify whenever it happens um another example we had a uh A new staff member joined us that came from a very large hotel chain and was used to a lot more division of labor. And she happened to be in our human resources department, but was walking down the hall, bumped into a desk, sorry, into a guest. The guest said, can you tell me where I could get a scale? This staff member, who had only been with us for two weeks, came to her manager and said, can you tell me who in our hotel is in charge of scales, just a weight scale for this guest who wanted one? And we sort of chuckled. It's a new person who said, well, actually, we all are in charge of scales. And because you had that interaction with the guest, it makes sense for you to be the one to deliver on that the second half of the story is, so that uh, sorry, human resource person gets the scale, delivers it. She was so animated the next day at the staff meeting and how happy she made a guest. And, and that's what it's all about. It's kind of this mutual take good care piece of it. But mm. then it's not easy. Uh, you, you have to be at that every day and make sure that your team knows that you really need it. Wow.
0: Well. So where, where does your passion come from in this? Because you mentioned bigger resorts that are more corporate, you know, in nature, and they have a lot more rules and regs and they don't maybe take in more as much of an empowering approach as you do, but you're still competing against them in ways. So it's a little bit, and I don't know if you would describe it as David and Goliath, uh, because you might see yourself as the, you know, as the big one in the room, but what how do you, where does your passion come from in this in this competitive battle to really foster something different than what people can get elsewhere?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I'll give you a two part answer. First, a little bit about me, Ben. I, I come by my love for hospitality. Honestly, I, I grew up in a hotel business, family business, where mm-hmm. I started really young. I I had my first job in the field business when I was 10. I had a paper route, and that's not delivering papers, but picking them up. So I got assigned the area at the resort where I had to go around and pick up papers. Uh, And my dad was in charge of, you know, driving around after I had done my route. And boy, uh, I learned early you know, about details and hard work and don't miss. You know, every wow. single cigarette, on, every piece of paper got picked up. So, it where comes was that? Still, was that in
0: the US? Or?
1: That was in the US. I grew up in Western Pennsylvania at a ski okay. area called Springs um, Mount okay. Resort. So, okay. um, that, that's the early story. But I, but I think the important part of your question, sort of the David and Goliath bit, I think the connectivity of social media and what's happened with the internet and the ability for smaller players to connect with their customers is really different than it used to be. So TripAdvisor, Booking.com's evaluation, Google's evaluation, uh, you know, all of the restaurant companies where people leave mm. reviews. That lets smaller companies talk directly to the customer in a way they couldn't historically, right? I can I can reach them directly. People come to your website. Um, and really the new evaluator, if you will, the good housekeeping seal of approval is every bit as much the consumers, what the people think, right? You know, what, what are the reviews? That lets everybody play in the game in a different way. I have learned much from the big players, have such respect for the quality of, of the best hotel companies. But it's a little different landscape, to be honest. Um, it, it lets smaller companies pitch in a way that um, can connect directly with the consumer.
0: Wow. I love that. The game has changed, there are new mediums to re- ways to reach people than before. And it sounds like you all are leveraging that a lot. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get Vital Insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. So picking up paper and cigarettes at a ski resort as a kid did not turn you off from the hotel industry.
1: Well, I mean, God. There, there was a period of time after college, to be perfectly honest, where I said, you know, I'm going to go do something completely different. And I took a job at an advertising agency in Chicago, completely different field. And I, I, the way that the agency worked, I was working for Leo Burnett. We worked in a oh. research pool for a period of time. It was sort of the holding tank till your number came up and you got assigned to an account. Big agency. And I think my odds were probably one in 500 that what would happen would happen. But a division of Pillsbury at the time, who was a big account of, of Leo Burnett, was in Al Albennigan's Restaurant. And wouldn't you know, by attempt to go off piste. I landed right back on a restaurant account, which oh. turned out to be the best assignment I could have gotten because I, I knew the business, I knew covers and turns and hmm. all kinds of things about it. So it, it, it helped in my work there. So, and then I sort of said, you know what, I actually really do love this business um, and, and went, went, went back into it full time.
0: And so what was the moment in your career where you're like, you know what, Pennsylvania, I love you, but now I'm going international and I'm going hardcore national going, you know, wineries, we're going top level resorts in France and the Caribbean. I mean, it seems like there was a jump at some point to, uh, going global. What was the, what was the moment?
1: Yeah, I, I'd say that the, 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 water drop was travel. Um, and, and I always loved to travel and, and honestly, absolutely fell in love with, the French je ne sais quoi, the extraordinary, you know, culture approach, their sense of style and food and wine. And so I think some of it was a personal passion. I have to admit, my grandfather on my father's side was from the Alsace region, how I end up with a French name like Dupre. So in some ways, I came full circle just two generations later um but I, but i honestly think it was just the extraordinary sense of design and in, innovation and and all of the things that the french stand for that mm. that sort of provoked my passion
0: At, putting w-
1: all of that together
0: what's been the greatest challenge or one of the one of the challenges that you faced being american and all of your resort and champagne and wine work in france
1: yeah, but I, I think, in a sort of global sense, having perspective to realize that you are a foreigner and having complete respect for what another culture brings, mm. and trying to adapt and learn local culture and be part of understanding who they are and how mm. we might take an American risk taking spirit and marry that with culture or hospitality and see what happens and it t- it's turned out pretty well
0: okay so let's let's go there on the risk taking you know i've read some yeah. of your your articles and your philosophy you're encouraging employees to take a risk and to bring up i'll say entrepreneurial ideas even within an organizational or boundaries what's your thought process when it comes to risk taking and empowering your team to do so. And you gave us a great story earlier of the customer service piece that that might have some of that. And what are your recommendations for leaders who might be, I'll say, a little bit in hesitant, a little bit hesitant to empower uh their employees because it does feel risky. Yeah, I think part of
1: the, the way to get there is to get your team comfortable with failure. So one of the things that I try to do in my monthly roundtables with our senior teams is I ask them, you know, what what did you do this month that failed? I, I want to know what <laughs> didn't work. Um, and you know, normally we, we all gravitate to tell me everything you did that was success, tell me what went well. Of course. But <laughs> you no, know, right? be okay yeah. and we all love to see, don't yeah. get me wrong. But if you could get people comfortable knowing that it's okay to fail. And I personally try to share stories if I've failed um, because I think the real secret is failure is, um, is an opportunity at some level. You, you mm-hmm. learn, we all learn so much more from our failures than we do from our successes. And getting people comfortable that you can be in a loop of test, try, iterate, and if you fail, it's okay. Fail, mm-hmm. call it, pivot, move on. If you never fail, do you really possibly imagine that you've reached the limit? Mm. Right. You, yeah, you know, kind of you, discover you know? the limit
0: through the failure. Oh, okay. Yeah. Otherwise, there might be more to gain, and you would never know. Do you? Yeah. What's your what? Uh, what's a favorite failure of yours to share?
1: Oh boy, um, you know probably the one. That, um, we, we all have our strengths and weaknesses, but you know. Having to get comfortable with conflict is something that early on in my career, I, I wasn't as, as good with. And, you know, I, I had a situation where I had two senior team members really at conflict with one another. And I, I was afraid to go there. I was afraid to call it what it was. And so I sort of danced around it. Well, I learned a good lesson in that because ultimately, one person got so mad that they left. And the other person wasn't so functional for a while and ultimately didn't work out either. So I really missed an opportunity. I missed an opportunity to get mm. those two people to talk to one another in a different way, um, to try to get them to understand each other. So, And, I, and by the way, I think in, in a, lot of, a lot of situations, not naming conflict when you have it and not just driving right into the middle of it, none of us... Are comfortable in the middle of conflict, but, but I'd say that's, that's important. It also, I think helps when you're dealing with a guest that's disgruntled, like we have them, like it's okay. Like to, to be able to, to work through a complicated situation can also be a real asset in a, in a hotel business.
0: Yeah. I love that. And I love how you dissected that. A lot of times leaders don't say, Hey, yeah, this is, this is where I fell, but they don't take the time to really, turn it into a learning moment for themselves, but also the way you talk about it is a way you can teach other people on your team. I can see you sharing that in a staff meeting. And this is a lesson too for all of us listeners today to think about those moments, those twists, how can you use it as a, as a teaching device You know, for your managers and how you, how you want them to do it. Now, if you have a disgruntled or when you have a disgruntled uh, customer, um. At, at a hotel or resort? And, I mean, what's your process or how how do you teach your team at a top-ranked resort to handle conflict like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is listen. Listen really carefully. Often, the, the root of the disgruntlement is people just want to be heard. They don't even yeah. necessarily want anything other than for someone to, to hear them out and to empathize. So the first part of it is, you know, really listen, be authentic, you know, put yourself in their shoes, try to be compassionate and empathetic to what, what they're feeling. And I always tell people to keep a sense of humor, you know, often these situations, you know, seem bigger than they really are. And it's, if you can get people comfortable just by, you know, keeping your sense of humor and keeping calm, you could usually get through um, difficult situations um, a lot more easily than you think.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people miss too the sense of humor, knowing that hey, let's it's it's rarely life or death here, and we can we can find a way to work through this. So so go lightly with it. what oh, and, you know. I'll, and so, so that's sort of a handling, handling conflict. Uh, let's talk about some of the challenges that you all have faced. Uh, recently, you know, people could be listening to this interview, you know, years down the road, but we're just really out of the pandemic and some of the countries still, or some of the world still experiencing it. Uh, but I, that was, that was really hard for, for the hotel industry. And then I know you all faced Hurricane Irma and it was a really difficult situation uh, as a leader what what did you do i'm curious from you from an internal standpoint for someone who's really prides themselves on you know on having these amazing resorts uh how did you handle it as a leader and then how did you handle it with your team yeah
1: um it, it, uh, I'll admit that may have been the highest challenge of, of my career. So a little bit of background, Ben. We had opened the hotel in the fall of, of 2016. Brand new, rave reviews, fabulous, teams on a roll. And some 11 months later, Hurricane Irma came through and literally just nearly completely destroyed the hotel. So the difficult part... And this is on the other side of a satellite phone, to be honest, because all communication was gone from the island Mm. to speak of. The first set of communication that I had was from our general manager who literally walked to the hotel because the roads were closed. He reported, you know, uh, not good, but most importantly, he reported that they were able, by just word of mouth, to learn that everyone was alive. So imagine that the first piece of the conversation is what do we got, life or death, and everyone's alive. Then a couple of days later, and you know, this is a tough situation uh, and some hotels in the Caribbean were immediately laying people off. And the, the call that I got was, you know, everyone is now asking, do they have a job? You know, what's, what's mm. tomorrow? And that was the point in my career where there were no landing lights. You know, didn't know what insurance would do, didn't know how this was gonna work. And the the thought that I had was we've just got to do the right thing here. We'll just mm. take the high ground. So what I said was, and I also felt like I had to lead more than ever. I said, everyone on our team. Has a job. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like in the coming year because we aren't going to be open and we're going to have to pivot for what everybody is doing. But anybody that wants to be dedicated, and we start tomorrow to rebuild. Mm. That felt the most extraordinary goodwill, Ben, and people are still with me that remember that moment and. You know, just mm. letting people know that you cared, And honestly, we locked arms and everyone did lots of different things that year. But we literally kept our entire team that wanted to stay and reopened mm. to the same day, October 28th, our lucky day. The following year, we were one of the first hotels to open. And that was truly that was a team effort in its finest form. Couldn't have done it without the lock arms of the entire team. And and it's paid dividends ever since. It, it sort of put us mm. on the map for what we stand for, which is always back your people, do the right thing, be full of integrity. So I, I didn't have to tell that team that that's what we stood for um, in the subsequent mm. years because it's just so apparent. So learned a lot about the value of really doing the right thing and caring about
0: people from so your heart. Yes. Such a powerful point that you just made. You can tell people about your values and what you stand for as a leader in a company, but just show them. When you show them, you don't have to just keep banging the drum and the emails all the time about your values. I mean, it's important to keep stating it, but like, look, and then they tell each other and they tell their family and they tell their, their friends, you know, hey, this is what happened. Okay, I get that. I get, I get this company now.
1: Yeah, it, it, if you know, and and thinking about you know where everyone is, what's on their mind. You know, I remember the subsequent phone conversations with my team. You know, what do you most miss? I remember with one of my team members, she's again we're on a French island, I appreciate they love good food. She's like, I haven't seen fresh mozzarella in. Weeks and I just, you know I just miss fresh tomatoes and mozzarella and then I sort of went from team person to team person. Uh, and and true story, I took very little clothes on my first trip to the island, but I had bags full of food. I had. Mm-hmm. Fresh mozzarella, threw in the tomatoes and basil for one team member. I had takeout Indian, who one <laughs> of our team members who in our heritage, so I had takeout Indian dinner. And I, I, because what do you do, right? You show up, and you, you everything is pretty well destroyed, and you're trying to figure out how we're going to rebuild. But what you do is what we do in hospitality, which is you, you know, you share a meal together, you break bread, and you know you. You open a bottle of wine and you try to hear the stories of the people that are with you. So I do remember my two suitcases full of food was, was my gift to my team. And uh, again, it's it's listening for what really matters to them and where they are and what they need. And that's if you can get if you can do that for your team, they can do that for your guests. And that's what makes a world-class hotel.
0: Well, after hearing that, if the listeners do not want to drink one of your one of your wines or your champagnes or go one, go to one of your resorts, I'll be shocked because it's amazing how hearing from an executive that I mean, really walking the walk, it's just it's just easy to get on board with that and want to root for and support champagne hospitality. Uh, man, what well, I got? I've got a lot more questions. We don't have a lot more time. Uh, but I want to ask you. It's so interesting to me. You know, you're running, you know, U.S. operations, uh, Caribbean. I mean, Europe. France, I mean, all these different places, and yet you're still finding time to teach at these top-ranked institutions. I mean, Harvard. You know, Cornell, Gosh. Boston. What? <laughs> So why well, are you going the extra mile to do this? And I think it's noble, okay, but you got a lot going on. And uh, what is the what's the benefit from an executive or not waiting until like you might see like a like a, a senior leader might retire and then go do this, but doing it while you're leading a global organization is a lot, a lot to do. So yeah, tell, tell some more about
1: that. A couple of things. Um, I I tried to juggle both at a pretty full time rate for a while, and and something had to give a little bit. So I sort of had to go to guest lectures and uh, periodic classroom, and put my teaching energy actually into my team because I've worked with young talent going into the hospitality industry as a full time hotel school professor. So I've sort of channeled my inner professor to the team that I have. And then Mm -hmm. honestly, just because there are moments when something in my career day happens and I'm like, this is so good. I want to write this down as a case study and I've got to get into the classroom and share this real problem, this real story, because I think the richest learning, particularly in a kind of curriculum, which hotel schools are tied to an industry, what's really happening on the ground is is the real learning for them. So I try to get back in the classroom as much as I can now. Uh, I sit on the board of the hotel school uh, at BU and periodically um, in their classrooms and try to do what I can to share knowledge when I was teaching full time, I had to do the opposite, which is always put my hand into industry at some level, connecting with other professionals or consulting work. Because it really, it's the marriage of the two—the mm. the practical learning as well as the classroom learning—that I think is the gift, the gift to students who really want to mm. be in the business.
0: When when I saw your profile, I'm like, this is an this is an executive. He has found a a super secret savvy way to recruit great talent because you're like finding someone in, in your, maybe in your class and you're like, Hey, when you come out of school, you, uh, you might need to interview with our company, but maybe that's not, maybe it's not part of it, but that, that, that struck me.
1: No, actually, I, I'm struck even when I'm traveling all around the world. I can't help but like see a young talent and and connect. And honestly, one of the things that we do that's a little bit different is I'll take a chance on someone who I think has the right smarts and the right attitude, even if they don't have a lot of experience, uh, because hmm. I feel like that's a place where I can I can teach. I can I can go down Mm. that piece of the skill set which opens up a lot more opportunities for someone who doesn't have a lot of experience but Mm. gives me a chance um, to, to channel my inner teacher
0: oh i love it i love it well we are out of time now but denise before we move on here uh what's your parting thought for our listeners
1: Oh, wow. You know, I, I I think about what I tell my teams, you know, with the company named Champagne Hospitality. What we tell them every day is, you know, make it pop. Surprise and delight <laughs> our guests. Look, look for opportunities to do that. So, so that's what I would say. You know, make it pop.
0: Make it pop. And I think you made it pop today on this interview. Thanks, Denise.
1: Appreciate
0: it, Ben, very much. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com/quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative: The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping.
1: Ben Fanning is a number one best selling author, Inc. magazine columnist, and CEO of The Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.